I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 102, and it's about the Tudor tutors and Tudor education. So who were the teachers who brought up our illustrious Tudor princes and princesses? And what was education like in the 16th century? But first, I I need to thank my patrons who help keep this show independent. I have amazing patrons. Thank you to Elizabeth, Kathy, Cynthia, Jurgen, also Sarah, Megan, Melissa, Lady Anne, Jessica, Olivia, Al, Ashley, Kendra, Cynthia, Judith, Berta, hi Berta, Renee, hi Renee, Katie, Mara, Emily, Celine, Lara, Ian, Barbara, Shar, Kiva, Amy, Allison, Joanne, Kathy, Christine, Annetta, Susan, Andrea, Catherine, Rebecca from TudorsDynasty.com, Shandor, Philip, and John. Thank you, you guys. If you want to be part of this group of very intelligent people with exceptional taste, please go to patreon.com slash englandcast to sign up for as little as a dollar an episode. I also need to mention the Agora podcast of the month for April, which is the history of England by the illustrious David Crowther. And I'm pretty sure that if you listen to this show, you don't need to have any more information about David Crowther. He is amazing. And his show is amazing. So if you don't know it, you can go to historyofengland.co.uk or look up David Crowther's History of England on any podcatcher. He's right in the middle of the 16th century right now. So it's a great time to start listening to him. But you can also go back and learn more about the Anglo-Saxon period and all of English history through his History of England podcast. So check that out. And one final thing, if you like treats, and who doesn't really, I invite you to check out the Treasures from Best subscription box that I've recently launched. It's a monthly box filled with Tudor treats like books, jewelry, handmade spa items, all inspired by Tudor history. It's $39.99 a month, including free shipping in the continental US. So you can check out treasuresfrombest.com for more information. It's named after Bess of Hardwick. She is my history heroine. So treasuresfrombest.com for more information and to see sample boxes and learn more. So edumacation. <laughs> the first thing I want to talk about 
with education during this period is that things were quickly changing. It's one of the things I love about the 16th century is how you see this transition from a medieval society to an early modern one, right? So education was expanding rapidly. During this period, we see new grammar schools, dozens of new grammar schools founded in England. Before the Tudor period, education was mostly vocational or technical. People were taught very specific trades. Medieval England was a place where children were taught these trades and also very few children, less than 10%, attended any kind of formal schooling. So all of this would begin to change during the Tudor period. There were two types of schools. The petty school was taught, which taught children how to read and write. And that generally wasn't an endowed school. You might have a schoolmaster who happened to be in a particular town and he would open up a petty school. It taught reading and writing, perhaps a little bit of arithmetic and religion, and that was all. Then there was the grammar school for older children that taught Latin and more advanced studies. There was also university education, but this was only in Oxford and Cambridge. Also, you could argue that the Inzik court where lawyers were trained also could have counted as a university. But in general, it was Oxford and Cambridge. During this period, Cambridge was growing with the foundation, thanks to Lady Margaret Beaufort of Christ College and St. John's. Lady Margaret Beaufort was very supportive of education, and she funded both of those. Also, there is a little tidbit about her that she really valued reading and writing, and especially for women, because her great aunts supposedly were the first women in England to learn how to read and write. So that's apocryphal, but it's something that I came across, right? So the church also at this time funded most of the education and teachers were the priests. Henry VII encouraged education and the arts, and he was, of course, influenced by these humanists, the, the new learning of this time. Henry brought writers, musicians, and artists to England, including Polydor Virgil, who came and was invited to write a history of England. The printing press changed everything with education as well. Caxton brought the printing press to England in the late 1470s, and I did do a few episodes on Caxton and printing, which I will link to in the show notes. At first, it was used solely to print literary works, but as the new century dawned, Caxton began to print more humanist works and textbooks, and literacy grew at a dramatic rate through this period. This is a period where the rise of humanism, not necessarily secular education the way we think of it today, but what people people at the time called the new learning was on the rise. In England, it was advanced by John Collette, who was the Dean of St. Paul's, and Thomas More, and also Erasmus when Erasmus was in England. The idea was to recover these previously lost texts of antiquity and use them combined with the teachings of Christian morality to create educated citizens and a really good educated ruling class as well. In 1537, Sir Thomas Eliot, a member of Henry VIII's secretariat, published a book called The Governor, which laid out the perfect humanist education as he saw it. Children should be taught Latin by the age of seven. Between seven and 14, they would read the Latin classics and they would start learning Greek. And after that, until they were about 17, they would learn logic, rhetoric, history, and poetry. Between 17 and 21, they would study philosophy, ethics, 
classics and the works of Plato. And then at 21, they would begin studying law. They would also learn horsemanship, dancing, and the military arts. In 1570, Roger Ascom, who had been Elizabeth's tutor, wrote The Schoolmaster, which was inspired by a discussion that he had with William Cecil about education. And Ascom wrote down this conversation. He wrote it all down. It was, he said, specially purposed for the bringing up of youth in gentlemen's and noblemen's households. It's important to remember that the Protestant Reformation led to an increase in literacy and education as well, because the reformers wanted everyone to have access to the Bible in order to have this personal relationship with God and to understand the word of God through the scriptures. This led to a push for greater education for everyone, not just the elite, and also for women. The 16th century saw a huge rise in education for the masses with more students in schools than we would see again until the 19th century. So there was a drop off in the 17th and 18th centuries. This changed the composition of the people in the colleges, and it meant that in addition to the noble and the gentry, there were also merchant classes and more different types of the middle class that we see in addition to the nobles. So how did this all play out with our Tudor monarchs? And what can we learn about how they were taught? I'm going to look now at the education of Prince Arthur, Henry VIII, Mary, Elizabeth, and Edward. So Arthur had two known tutors, schoolmaster John Reed, who began when Arthur was five or six and was already starting to learn how to read, and also Bernard Andre, who was a poet orator. He taught Arthur from the time he was about 10 until he was almost 15. A broad list of the classics were already important in Arthur's education. Andre wrote that Arthur read and partially memorized the works of many Greek and Roman poets, orators, and historians. And many of those works he could recite off by memory even before he was 15 years old. Their curriculum also was very new and almost experimental. Several of these classical texts had only just been discovered by Western Europe. It was mostly focused on pre-Christian Greek, so there was also a sort of pagan element of his of his education, but there was also religious study. Bernard Andre wrote a commentary on the writings of St. Augustine specifically for Arthur. The next person I want to talk about is John Skelton. He was Henry VIII's tutor when he was young. Henry had a humanist education with lessons in the morning and the afternoon, and Erasmus described Henry VIII as a lively mentality which reached for the stars, and he was able beyond measure to bring to perfection whichever task he undertook. Thomas More said he is in every respect a most accomplished prince. His education would have been largely directed by his mother, and some experts and historians actually believe that she was the person who taught him how to write because there are a lot of similarities in their handwriting. He would have been taught the languages, again, Latin, Greek, French, Italian, and Spanish, also grammar and theology, especially the history of the church and tenets of the church. He also is taught history, rhetoric, logic, philosophy, arithmetic, literature, geometry, and music. He also studied studied astronomy and navigation map making, which was so new at this time period, and he took an an interest to it right away. The main tutor who was responsible for this education of Henry early on in his life was John Skelton. John Skelton's an interesting character. He was born in 1463, likely from Norfolk. He was educated at both Oxford and Cambridge, and he was already a scholar in 1490 when William Caxton published an early title mentioning him as an expert in Virgil. He had degrees in rhetoric, and Lady Margaret Beaufort was actually his patron early on when he was still writing poetry in the 
1490s. He was the tutor to the young Prince Henry when Prince Arthur was still alive. And Erasmus himself wrote an ode to Prince Henry in which he spoke of Skelton as Unum Britannicarum Literarum Lumen Acdecus. It's a Latin phrase that roughly translates as the one light and glory of British letters. Somehow, Skelton managed to get himself imprisoned in 1502, but there's not really a record as to why. Two years later, he retired from court and he became a rector. He also caused a bit of a stir there. People thought he was more at home on the stage and reading his poetry than in a pew. He was secretly married to a woman who lived in his house and he satirized the Dominican monks. So he came under formal censure of Richard Nix, who was the bishop of the diocese, and he appears to have been temporarily suspended. One person in particular who earned his ire was Cardinal Wolsey. Early on in his career, skeleton was supported by Wolsey. But in 1522, Wolsey, as papal legate, dissolved the convocation at St. Paul's and skeleton circulated the short poem, Gentle Paul, lay down thy sword, for Peter of Westminster hath shaven thy beard. When you first read about John Skelton, you see a lot about how he likely fled to sanctuary during this time in Westminster, where he was supported by the abbot and continued writing these little poems and attacks against Wolsey. But a lot of that can't be verified. So I'm not going to say that it's fact. Just know that there's a lot of rumors and stories that Skelton spent time in sanctuary at Westminster Abbey for writing satirical poems about Wolsey in particular, which I'm going to read now. Here's one, a famous one that says, why come ye not to court? You have to remember at this time, Hampton Court was still owned by Cardinal Wolsey. It was the new palace that Wolsey had built, and it hadn't belonged to Henry VIII yet. So it says, why come ye not to court? To which court? To the king's court or to Hampton Court? Nay, to the king's court. The king's court should have excellence, but Hampton Court hath the preeminence. And York's place with my lord's grace, to whose magnificence is all the confluence, suits and supplicants, embassies of all nations. So he's essentially saying that, you know, Hampton Court is where it's all at, and Wolsey has gotten a little bit too big for his britches, as it were. Skelton died in Westminster in June of 1529, actually on the very same day when Catherine of Aragon was pleading with Henry at the Legantine court to honor their marriage in that very famous scene where Catherine gets down on her knees and um, made such a stir with her argument and then left the court. And that's the day that Skelton died. So let's move on now to Mary. During her lifetime, many people acknowledge that Mary had a substantial education In her own lifetime, and when it ended, it received flattery, especially from those obviously without a grievance against her who hadn't been affected by Bloody Mary. And it was mentioned, for example, in the Bishop of Winchester's funeral sermon. One biographer, Beatrice Wright, wrote that overeducation was one of the penalties Tudor children had to pay for their royal birth, unquote. And she considered too much studying to be a contributing factor in Mary's poor health. So, I think that's a little bit outdated, but it just goes to show that people did consider her to be very intelligent and very, very well educated. So Mary's education was organized largely by her mother again, just like Henry's. But by the time she was old enough to start school, Mary was still the only legitimate heir for her father. So she needed to be brought up with a prince's education. Normally, women would be taught privately in more domestic sorts of studies. Universities were still closed to women. So in general, women were not given any kind of classical education, even noble women. They would go and serve in the households of other noble women and learn the skills that they needed there. 
But Mary, who was the heir to the throne, needed a more classical education. After all, her grandmother, Isabella of Castile, ruled her own kingdom in her own right. And so Catherine arranged for her daughter to have an education that was much more complete and more formal than a normal girl would receive. Catherine arranged for the Spanish humanist Jean-Louis Vives to write a manual for the education of Mary. He had written an earlier version encouraging girls to be educated solely for the work of raising children and also being good partners and companions for their husbands. But when Mary was seven, Vives wrote on a plan of study for children, which emphasized Greek and Latin and recommended books by Erasmus, Thomas More, and Plato. He specifically recommended for Mary Plato's dialogues that demonstrate the government of the Commonwealth. Mary was not allowed to read popular romance books because her tutors believed that they would give young girls immoral thoughts. By the time she was nine, Mary could write a letter in Latin. She could also understand Spanish, could speak Greek, French, and some Italian. She also played music. It was said that as a teenager that she quote, sings excellently, plays on several musical instruments so that she combines every accomplishment. She also learned dancing, which was thought to give people poise and grace. This was an important set of attributes to have, according to the humanists. And she went hunting and learned horsemanship. Elizabeth, her half-sister, daughter, of course, of Henry and Anne Boleyn, was a very bright and precocious girl. Her first tutor was her lifelong friend, Kat Ashley. A well-educated woman, Kat was appointed governess to Elizabeth in the autumn of 1536, and she led the foundation of her education. She taught Elizabeth how to read and write English and grammar, And in addition, she also taught Elizabeth etiquette, how to behave, and needlework. So Elizabeth had grasped English by the time she was five or six, and she then began to study foreign languages. Kat taught her the rudiments of Latin, but pretty soon Elizabeth outgrew Kat's skills. She was allowed to share her brother Edward's tutors, Jean Balmain, who taught French, Richard Cox, he was the provost of Eton, and he taught Greek and Latin, and then John Cheek, he was the Regis Professor of Greek at St. John's College, and a classic linguist who focused on the readings of the Holy Scriptures and Cicero, Aristotle, and Plato. She quickly noted how intelligent Elizabeth was and brought it up to her stepmother, Catherine Parr, that she should have her own private tutor. The tutor that she received was William Grindle. He was a 20-something Cambridge student and the aforementioned Roger Ascombe's pupil. In the mornings, he would teach Elizabeth Greek, focusing on the readings of the New Testament and Greek classics. In the afternoons, she studied Latin with particular emphasis on the works of Cicero. She also studied theology, philosophy, math, geometry, history, and literature. She was particularly good at foreign languages and by the time she was 11, she was fluent in Greek, Latin, Italian, and French. In 1548, Grindle died and Roger Ascombe replaced him. Roger Ascombe was a Yorkshireman. He studied at Cambridge. He loved reading and he loved talking about the old Greek and Roman classics. He followed the same sort of routine set by Grindle and he chose texts that, quote, best adapted to study her tongue with the purest diction, her mind with the most excellent precepts, and her exalted station with a defense against the utmost power of fortune. Like her sister, Elizabeth was also taught all of those activities that ladies needed to know, including embroidery, sewing, dancing, and music. She also learned how to ride, hunt, and she even practiced archery. Moving on to Edward, Edward, of course, never knew his own mother, and his nursery was in the charge of Lady Margaret Bryan, who had also cared for his sisters. In March of 1539, Henry personally issued an obsessively detailed instruction for the care of his most precious joy. Richard Cox, who was the headmaster of Eton, was the prince's tutor from 1540. 
But in November of 1541, Edward caught malaria at Hampton Court, and his lessons were interrupted while he recovered from that. Henry summoned all the doctors in the country, and it took a while for him to get back to normal. In July of 1544, Catherine Parr arranged for John Cheek to become the tutor to Edward, and her immediate circle was centered on the royal nursery, where John Cheek, Richard Cox, Anthony Cook, and other reforming humanists were appointed the tutors to Edward and Elizabeth. It was suggested that John Cheek was a humanist scholar in the tradition of Erasmus, but it's also pretty likely that he was a supporter of Luther, and this could explain Edward's support for religious reform and his Protestantism. The most striking thing about Edward that I want to talk about is his diary. He was likely given the task of writing a diary from one of his tutors. It's the first time that we see a glimpse into the day-to-day life of a monarch in his own words like this. It begins with a depiction of his childhood up until 1540. And then from 1547 to 1549, the diary is a chronicle of past events. And it mostly refers to Edward in the third person, like he's looking back on his life, referring to himself as if he's writing a story. Then from March of 1550 until November of 1552, when it ends, it's more like a diary with entries for individual days. And he doesn't really talk very much about his own feelings about anything. He says very little about his daily activities or his own opinions. But he does talk about fascinating things like when he and Elizabeth found out about their father's death from his uncle Edward Seymour. They were at Elizabeth's Enfield residence on the 30th of January in 1547. And he wrote that it caused great grief in London, but he doesn't say anything about his own personal feelings. He describes the Privy Council's choice of Edward Seymour as the protector and governor of the king's person. And he mentions how his father's officers broke their staffs of office and threw them into Henry VIII's grave at his burial. He called his diary a chronicle, and he does appear very cold and detached when he's writing in it, as if he's just recording events that happen. He talks a lot about jousting and wars, and he also records what others told him about events. And he wrote a lot about what the French ambassador said about things. There's also a really interesting entry from 1551 here where we learn of his berating his sister Mary for practicing the mass. He writes, The Lady Mary, my sister, came to me to Westminster, where after greeting, she was called with my counsel into a chamber where it was declared how long I had suffered her mass in hope of her reconciliation, and how now there being no hope as I saw by her letters, unless I saw some speedy amendment, I could not bear it. She answered that her soul was God's and her faith would not change, nor hide her opinion with dissembled doings. It was said I did not constrain her faith, but willed her only as a subject to obey, and that her example might lead to too much inconvenience. On the 19th of March, the emperor's ambassador came with a short message from his master of threatened war, if I would not allow his cousin the princess to use her mass. No answer was given to this at the time. The following day, the bishops of Canterbury, London, and Rochester, Thomas Cramer, Nicholas Ridley, and John Scorey concluded that to give license to sin was sin, to allow and wink at it for a time might be born as long as all possible haste was used. So it's a fascinating look at life inside Edward's reign, I suppose. And 
And the entire diary itself is available online and in books. So I'll link to that in the show notes. So I'm going to leave it there for this week. The book recommendation is Medieval Schools, Roman Britain to Renaissance England by Nicholas Orm. I have a link at the show notes as well. You can get in touch with me through the listener support line at 8016 Tesco or through Twitter at Tesco or facebook.com slash Englandcast. You can also sign up in the Tudor History Facebook group as well, where there's a lot of Tudor holic chat that goes on all day long. So you can get your fix there. Thank you so much for your listenership. I'll be back again in about two more weeks with another Tudor Times Person of the Month this time it's Francis Walsingham. And don't forget to check out treasuresfrombest.com for your monthly tutor treat fix. I will talk with you again very soon. (laughs) Bye-bye.